0: Yes, thank you. Well, we are uh, doing a sermon series this Advent about birth and using that as a metaphor for the spiritual life. And so what better scripture to use than Jesus talking about rebirth, birth and rebirth as a metaphor for the spiritual life, right? A few things you should note, because the Bible doesn't tell us all the things we want to know. I wish it did. But when it does add detail, you have to pay attention because it's doing it on purpose. So we know Nicodemus is a Pharisee. For those that don't know, right, Pharisees were like religious leaders, Jewish leaders. Um, They are typically the people Jesus is the most critical of because they are claiming to know all about God. But they use that as a way to judge and oppress the people that Jesus is roaming around with in Galilee. So he's a Pharisee, which means he doesn't really like Jesus that much or he's not supposed to. I always forget to take this off. He's not supposed to like Jesus. Because in chapter 2 of the book of John, Jesus has cleared the temple. And he's accused the religious leaders of turning the temple into a place to oppress the poor, to force them to pay for offerings so they can get forgiveness, they can get clean, and they can go into the temple. He's whipped them out and cleared it. And the Pharisees almost immediately begin to plot Jesus' arrest, his prosecution, his death. Chapter 3 comes, the very next chapter, and you have Nicodemus. And when does he go see Jesus? At night. That's not an accidental. On, they, the Bible's telling you. He's sneaking. He doesn't want his Pharisee friends to know he's going to the enemy. But Nicodemus has experienced something that intrigues him. Something in his gut says what Jesus is saying and doing must be from God. It brings life. So he sneaks in the middle of the night to see Jesus and Jesus gives him this very weird metaphor that I'm giving you about being born again. And he's like, well, how am I going to get in my mom's womb? Like gross. That's not going to happen. That's not what I mean. Right. I, I picture Nicodemus being like one of these very literal fellows, uh, <laughs> like you really, You're, you thought I meant be born again as a man, like, you know, come out of a womb. No. I mean like a spiritual rebirth, like a renewal, a transformation. And I think this probably piqued Nicodemus' heart and his mind because I picture him being sort of trapped when he goes to see Jesus. And I'll come back to that. I'm going to make a little bit of a detour. Are you okay? Let me do that. I mean, I'm going to ask and then I'm going to do it no matter what you say. I'm going to take a little detour because Jesus here uses a metaphor for deliverance for salvation for redemption right but the bible doesn't use just one metaphor for salvation the bible uses lots of metaphors and i think they're metaphors because of the divine mystery we're n- we we do not fully understand what happens on the cross or in the tomb or salvation is such a divine mystery that we can only get glimpses of it and we and our language is so inadequate that we try to use metaphor and I love that the Bible gives us a bunch of metaphors, because I don't like them all. <laughs> some of them just don't resonate with me. Some of the metaphors don't bring me life. But the very ones that maybe don't bring me life, other people reading are like, that just woke me up inside. That just God just got a hold of me, right? So I want to talk about some of these metaphors for salvation or redemption, deliverance that the Bible gives. We okay with that? Okay. So sometimes scripture uses a legal metaphor. And this might help some people, like lawyers, right? Humanity is guilty. So all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of our sin, there needs to be punishment, right? God is just, and sin requires there to be some consequence. And salvation is that what Jesus does on the cross pardons us for the sins we've committed. We, we actually don't get the punishment, right? So there's like guilt and pardon, a very legal kind of metaphor. I don't love this. this is just, like Some people love it. Some of you are like, I connect to that. that. That makes sense to me. For me, this always made me feel guilty and shameful. Unworthy and like it kept me immobile. But for other people, it brought life. And that's okay, right? That's not the only one. It, the Bible uses an economic metaphor as well about... Sin creating debt. The things I do, the transgressions I commit, builds a debt that I cannot repay. But Jesus pays my debt, sets me free from that debt, right? So it's a similar concept, but now it's going to resonate with other kinds of folks, right? Economic. We can go to the next slide, TJ. The Bible uses medical metaphors. Humanity is broken, Sin is like a disease, like our very nature has been corrupted, right? But Jesus is the great healer, the great redeemer, transforming our sinful nature into one that is now holy in some way, forgiven. So this medical metaphor of God as a healer, I like this one, personally. This is not about true or false, right or wrong. This is like the Bible using lots of different ways to connect to lots of different kinds of people. There's a purity metaphor. I think maybe this is the one that I feel like I heard, or at least how I interpreted it when I was in youth group and when I was young. It was very much like sin makes me dirty or impure. And of course, at that age, there's a lot about sexual stuff and sexual sin and impurity, right? But that Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' blood makes me white as snow. It purifies me. And this is the one I think probably right that Nicodemus is familiar with because the Old Testament, which the Pharisees are following the Old Testament law, is all about you're unclean. If you touch blood, if you commit a sin, if you don't sacrifice the right animals, if you touch a dead body, unclean, unclean, unclean. But you can become clean again, right? The Bible uses a prison metaphor for salvation, chained, Imprisoned, shackled, and Jesus breaks the power, right? The powers and principalities of this world and sets you free. This might be my favorite. I, like, I think, uh, I don't like to think about, or it's not helpful to me to think about sin like building up a debt or making me impure or, or surrounding me with guilt I like to think of sin as imprisoning me. Like, this, this is helpful to me. I'm chained. I chain myself. It's a prison of my own making. And that Jesus wants to deliver me from that and set me free to love, right? And then, of course, we get the birth metaphor that Jesus gives Nicodemus. That there's a sense in which there's, like, death, but you can have new, new life, rebirth, I picture this metaphor, Jesus saying something like, oh, Nicodemus, you don't have to live this way anymore, right? You can be reborn, transformed, redeemed. And this is like sort of the metaphor of baptism of being drowned and reborn out of the water, right? A new life in Christ, a new identity in Christ. And I picture Nicodemus's tomb being something like, and I'm going to talk about tombs and wombs today, just so you know, tombs and wombs, ah, it's clever, right? The tomb Nicodemus lives in is the tomb of the law. Get everything right. All 628 laws. You're going to make sure. And the logic of the law gives you two responses, pride or despair. Because either you're able to follow all the laws and you're prideful, as the Pharisees were, or you can't, and that leads you to despair. But there's no grace. Right? It's pride or despair. And Nicodemus is trapped in this tomb, and he hears the words of Jesus, and he hears the message of grace, and he wants that. He wants Jesus to set him free from his tomb, right? To be reborn, right? From a tomb to a womb, reborn anew. The scripture we've been using is from Galatians. This is Paul writing, I died to the law through the law. Because Paul was a Pharisee. He knows the tomb of Nicodemus, right? But I died to the law so that I could live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ in me. This is rebirth. This is transformation and redemption. Here's the payoff, though. Here's, like, the price. All new birth means death. And I wish this were not the way the world works, but it's true. Every new life, all new life requires a death, a dying of sorts. There's no free lunch. If Nicodemus wants to follow Jesus, Pharisee Nicodemus has to die. There's no other way. You don't get to stay Pharisee Nicodemus and be disciple Nicodemus. You don't get to do it. But I don't want to die, and you don't want to die. I don't like change. And you don't like change. And I don't want to be pushed and challenged. But that means I'm stuck in a tomb and I don't get the womb, right? A wonderful piece of fiction, if you're ever interested, Herman Hesse. He writes a book called Damien. It's like a coming-of-age story. But there's all kinds of wrestling with faith and religion and all this stuff. But there's a famous quote from this book that I think resonates with this. Damien is interpreting a painting. It's a painting of a bird getting out of an egg, being born, hatched out of this egg, right? And he's looking at it, and he writes below, the bird fights its way out of the egg. The egg is the world. Whoever will be born must destroy a world. And I think that's true. And who's willing to destroy their world to be reborn? (laughs) But if I'm not willing to do this, if I'm not willing to pursue death, change, disruption, then I will never have new life. I will be stuck. The world, though, is nothing but change and transition. That's what it is. We just talked about Gene. Life is transition. It will not stay the same. Many of you, Shelly just told us from work to retirement, how many of you think about like picture Mary, her life before Jesus and her life after Jesus' birth. She's like teenager, hanging out with her family, all of a sudden like married to Joseph, a virtual stranger, has a baby. They have to flee to Egypt as refugees because Herod's killing kids. Her old life died when she got pregnant with Jesus. It's gone That is the way the world works. We will all transition and get older. You'll go from being able to drive to not being able to drive. Only drive during the day, not at night. Healthy to sick. My kids were born my life before that was over. Before I got married versus after I got married, totally different. Old Joe's gone. Married Joe's here. And it's hard. And it takes sacrifice and surrender and dying what other alternative do we have to live in the illusion that it's all going to stay the same? Are you willing over and over and over again to be reborn, to allow God to continue to change and help you grow and transform greater forms of service, greater forms of selflessness, greater forms of love? I pray that I am willing to do this, right? That I, I won't be trapped in my tomb Many of you feel like you're in a tomb, the tomb of frailty, aging, the tomb of a job you hate, the tomb of feeling shame all the time, the tomb of like, I can't find that special someone, I'm alone, the tomb of my kids are making horrible choices and I can't do anything about it, the tomb of addiction. You're trapped in tombs that God wants to destroy. Every tomb, everyone, I don't care where you're at, every single tomb can be a womb. It can become the means of your rebirth if you let it. There's no guarantee, of course, because tombs can suffocate you. Tombs can crush you. But if we turn to God, if we turn to each other, if we deal with our pain, it can be the means of our transformation. Do you you believe that? I want to say yes, but I think maybe I believe it, but I don't live it because I work hard to keep my life the same. I work hard for homeostasis. And then I'm, like, shocked that things change and I'm forced out of my comfort rather than anticipating it, maybe even longing for it, that that tomb might be a womb. I'm going to conclude with uh, a quote. So uh, this sermon series has been inspired by the book from Sue Monk Kidd. When the Heart Waits, I love it. Hear these words. When I was pregnant with my daughter, my son Bob was three years old. It's hard, like Bob always feels like an adult name to me. A three-year-old named Bob, that's so, I love it, that's so interesting. When I was pregnant with my daughter, my son Bob was three years old and scared of the dark. We put a nightlight in his room. But sometimes he still cried out for me in the middle of the night. One night, as I held him against me to comfort him, he touched my rounded abdomen and asked, Mama, is it dark inside there where my little brother is? He was convinced his future sister was a boy. (laughs) It ended up being a girl. Yes, I said, it's dark in there. He doesn't even have a nightlight, does he? Nope, not even a nightlight. Bob patted my belly. I patted him. Finally, he asked, do you think my brother is scared in there all by himself? I don't think so, I said, because he's not really alone. He's inside of me. And suddenly, I had an inspiration. I said, and it's the same with you. When it's dark and you think you're really all by yourself in a tomb, you really aren't. I carry you inside me too, right here in my heart. I looked into his face, wondering if he understood what I meant. He didn't say anything. He just went back to sleep. But that was the last time he ever got me in the middle of the night. When we enter the spiritual night, the tomb, we can feel alone, encompassed by a fearful darkness. What we need to remember is that we're carried in God's womb, in God's heart, Even when we don't know it, even when God seems far away. That's been my growing awareness. First, God was only up there. Then, God was all around. Next, I began to see that God was in me. And finally, I began to realize I am within God. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is that everyone who feels like they are inside of a tomb for whatever reason, that they would remember that they are also inside of you, your love and your grace, and that you have the power to transform every tomb into a womb, into new life, into transformation, into rebirth. Remind us of that when we're at the end of our rope. Amen. If you've got your communion elements, we will move to the table. And um, let's remember, moving from tombs to wombs, nothing exemplifies that more than Jesus, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' burial, a literal tomb, into resurrection and new life. This is more than a one-time event that happened 2,000 years ago. God articulates powerfully the truth of what it means to be human, how to exist in this world right now, that our tombs can become wombs. And when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating rebirth. We're celebrating new life. We're celebrating the transforming love of God. So let's remember that as I read. And you can just be in a place of sort of like reflection, meditation, Hear these words, and then I will prompt you when we'll we'll take the elements. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to you, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. If you would take the bread, you can hold it in your hand, you can hold it up. We do this together. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Thanks be to God. And if you would open the section with juice. This is Christ's blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Amen. If you would please stand for our closing song. So, hey, here's our Advent saying, right? You're going to say it back to me. May Christ be born in you this Christmas. May Christ be born in you this Christmas. In your acts of service, in the way you love each other, in your words of affirmation, may Christ be born in you this Christmas. Have a great day.